Sutherland. He's the chair of the emergency department there, has worked in the ICU, has numerous publications um, that you guys can look up. Um, and just to kind of pitch this in, some of us know Anita Vishwanath. She was here, one of our residents before who graduated. She actually did a rotation over there. So if anyone's interested, maybe we can work it out with Dr. Sure. Benisar here and have someone go out there for elective. Um, so if I can get your attention, this is Dr. Bingster. Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks for the kind invitation, and I hope we can make it as interactive as possible. So, our hospital is not in the center of Bangkok, but <laughs> the center of the world, actually. The Rhine River down here, and you see the medieval town starting here of Basel, so it's beautiful. It's really worth going there. And the hospital is like, uh, yeah courtyard, you know, like courtyard hotel with a nice little garden in the middle. And the emergency department, that's just boxes as you know them, you know. It's always full. That was the first day when nobody was in there. Never ever seen it like that before. So we have, uh, we have another 50,000 uh, people coming to our department. But we have big outpatients departments for uh, ophthalmology, pediatrics, internal medicine, surgery. So we tend to send about half of the people just back out to these departments. So we kind of select people. We don't have many easy fours or fives. So that's another reason why I, I feel uh, um, confident about speaking about geriatric emergency medicine. Our population is 25% retired, meaning age 65 and up which is only beaten by some place in Japan, I heard. So let's start with an experiment. What's this? Paella. Yeah, right, paella. Now, question is a little more complicated now. Uh, is it fresh on your plate in a nice, expensive Spanish restaurant, or is it maybe in the back of a nice Spanish restaurant in a garbage can? What do you think? <laughs> 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 It's kind of difficult, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Looks kind of fresh, but it's then, fresh. yeah. Who, 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 is, who is for fresh on the plate, wants to eat it? <laughs> Only one person, okay. So 95% are uh, for the garbage, but what's the, what's the reason why you think it's not fresh on the plate? Okay. <laughs> okay, now if you, know, if you know the pattern, if you know the to this, it's easy because you see the sunlight shining in from this side. It's sunset. So it's in this huge garbage thing on sunset. So, but if you don't know, it's about the sunlight, co sunlight coming in, which can't be like on a table. You, you, can't, you can't resolve it. So that's, that's the picture I want to show you to start. It's, it's all about pattern recognition. If you know the pattern, it's probably easier to solve a case, which is just everywhere in, in, in emergency medicine the case. So I'm, I'm a, an avid photographer and I take pictures even of patients, of course I ask them and this old lady, she looked old, it was 9 o'clock at night and I was just going around like that in a suit and said, look, I'm, I'm a doctor but now I'm not working, I just want to take slides for presentations, can I take your picture? So she was, she didn't know why she was here. She seemed kind of old and kind of sick but not really sick, so just remember her as we go on, I'll resolve the case later. This is a typical patient, doesn't have place in the ED, stays on the hallway. Question is, home care impossible? She doesn't have specific complaints, she doesn't know why she's here, someone might have dumped her. Is it acute treatable disease or is it just frailty? 
loss of function. And this lack of community support uh, that starts to affect most countries. Maybe in Thailand, maybe they have more <laughs> family, you know, that cares for elderly people. We have, we have less family caring for elderly people. So they, they might be just lack of community support. Or, on the other hand, lots of acute treatable diseases <coughs> hide behind weakness, <coughs> frailty, loss of function. And we don't always know. So this is a picture a friend of mine took in Italy, and you see that's the ambulance here, and here is the social services right next. Same thing in Moscow. In, 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 uh, in Russia, they wouldn't send out an ambulance for an old person. They would just social services and, and bring them to some old people's home. So they do a kind of a triage by telephone. Oh, he's 90. Okay, social services. But who can tell a 90-year-old having an acute treatable disease from just being frail? I can't. Maybe you can. Maybe you can after this talk. <laughs> we'll see. So elderly use EMS up to five times more often than compar comparable younger populations and have repeat EMS trans transports. And this is a picture from last year in our ED. You see we have space for six ambulances coming in. And usually that space is taken up by taxis because elderly people don't want to take the ambulance. They want to take their taxi or even go take a train. So they don't, they don't want to bother. They tend to not come at night. They come at during daytime. So this makes the population seem healthier than they are. Now, demographic changes. I, I'm just quoting Casanova, age 49, so slightly younger than I am. He said, my life is over. There is no more use for my organs. I wonder which ones he meant. But at age 49, <laughs> at age 49 in the 18th century, it was you were really old. Now, unfortunately, he grew up to 73. I wonder how he spent his last years. Now, just imagine the Rolling Stones for their no in the Scandinavian tour. They engaged a geriatrician to go with them. They were only 60 at that time. <laughs> <laughs> and nowadays, it's almost a shame to become old. So people don't want to become old, they try to stay in shape with different measures and uh, <laughs> it's kind of your fault if you're getting old and you haven't done enough against it. So that's the modern world. And the problem to find disease in the elderly is kind of the needle in the haystack problem. And you see this guy, I forgot his name, but that's a picture from Boston Globe years and years ago. He actually hunted the needle in the haystack. Of course he didn't find it. And if we're as bad as him, we're, we're in trouble. Problems in the elderly, communication problems, atypical presentation of common diseases. That's really a, a problem. And then the broad spectrum of differential diagnosis. If someone comes in, I'm just weak, could be anything. That's the, the number one take-home message of today. And then there is a complex combination of medical and social problems. So you don't know if the support is lacking, but there's also a disease. So the combination of the two. And this is, in the literature, has been described as the presentation of disease in elderly people as being nebulous, unclear, vague, silent, atypical, complex. And my friend Ruchman from Geneva, he called it nonspecific. That's what I really like, nonspecific. Because you cannot identify a group of diseases that, that corresponds to a certain presentation mode. So the first question I'm going to ask and hopefully answer, are el elderly ED patients at risk of undertriage? The second then, I'm going to concentrate on nonspecific concentration 
uh, a presentation what's behind them. So this is our ED. You see the uh, wheelchairs are there for n not the people with their legs or anything, but that's for the elderly. They come out of the taxi. And in this population, first, don't complain, and second, no, atypical is typical. And these subtle changes of vital parameters in response to serious illness sometimes reminds me of pediatric problems. So they stay well, they stay well, all of a sudden, poof, everything goes down. Same thing, sepsis in the elderly. They don't even have fever. They have no acute phase reaction. Or too late, and then it's easy to find out, but too late to treat. So this is another view of Basel, and you see the hospital right behind this old, nice medieval part with a nice old bridge and the helipad on top. And that's what we do in summer. We swim down the Rhine. Now, attention, there's tankers coming up the Rhine, but they always stick to the right side. So please, if you swim, stick to your right side. And I took this picture because of the, of the word streaming. That's what we want to do. We want to stream our population, stream them into different population. That's what we do with the emergency severity index. I think you use the same here, right? Yeah, okay, so you know all about it and I don't have to explain. The problem is under triage in the elderly, is that a real problem or we're we just making up something? We couldn't find any good data on the literature. <coughs> so we did a study using two measurements. The first was inter-rater reliability. So do two experts agree on a on a given ESI level? Dr. Bindis, we yeah? just switched to ESI about a year ago, and okay. my guess is that we don't know what that is. All right. And I'm not even sure that I do exactly. Cool, cool. And I will lecture in the lecture. Okay, so you actually ask three questions. First is, does this patient require immediate life-saving intervention? And, and it's enumerated what a life-saving intervention is. It's basically uh, a s simple thing to ask. Is someone dying or not if I don't do anything? So that's a one. Go straight to resuscitation bay, even if they, if they come in by taxi. So needs life-saving uh, intervention. Second question you ask, is there a high-risk situation, such as heart attack, such as stroke? Is the patient confused, lethargic, disoriented? It's a two. Is this patient in severe pain or severe distress? It's a two. So you don't think about any disease. It's not like the Manchester or the Canadian uh, triage system. It's not about disease. It's just about acuity. And the third question is about resources. And this allows for streaming quite nicely because you ask yourself, and usually the nurses do the, the triaging, they ask themselves, how many resources does this patient need? Now, a resource is anything we as doctors don't carry around, like a stethoscope or our fingers or our ears usually. Um, so if a patient comes in with a hanging like, like this and he seems fine, then you can count, oh, he probably needs a CT scan, he needs an MRI, he might need a neuroconsult. Okay, stop counting. He needs more than one. So <laughs> many, many resources. So it's a three. Now, only the threes, and this has been proven in many, many, many studies from the year 2000 on onwards, only the threes, so if you get to the third question about resources, <coughs> need to, to have vitals checked. If you ask the first two questions and then probably doesn't need many resources, 
then you don't even have to check the vitals. They, they don't have a mortality. In our hands, 3,000 patients, zero mortality for four and fives. But then if you have a three looking like needing several resources, then you, know you need to take danger zone vitals. That means kids uh, um, and adults have different zones, but for the, for the adults, it would be like over eight years as an adult, heart rate over 100, respiratory rate over 20, saturations um, under 92. That means upgrade to two. Three vital signs, heart rate, respiratory rate, and saturation. It's easy to remember. And that's the ones that have been validated. Okay, so do these experts agree on a given easy level? Is it Speedwell Church or is it Little Help? Where does the patient go to? Interrate reliability. This, the second thing is because there's no golden standard for triaging. It's predictive val validity. What does this easy level predict? So is it an exit or maybe it's not an exit? Uh, so the predictive validity is the disposition. Where does the patient go to? It's the resources. How many resources does this patient need in the end, retrospectively? ED length of stay and, of course, mortality. Now, you want to have a 4 and a 5 that has no mortality. You want to have the ones with, like, 20% mortality. Otherwise, they don't really need a resuscitation base. So that's the predictive validity of the system. Now, what we did in one study of 2,211 patients in 30 days was just to ask two experts, expert two and expert one, to re-triage the patients. And you see in this example, the general population of 2,000 patients, an, an absolutely fantastic kappa of 0.985. This is probably world record and, and, and true accident. We didn't want it to have so high because it, it, it kind of, it's almost, it's almost a, a Russian voting uh, um, uh, percentage. <laughs> Uh, so, you see, there's hardly any over and hardly any under triage. The experts agreed on this random sample. The question was, this is a general population. What's the elderly population in the same study? Before I give you these numbers, you see the validity on survival. You see the easy 4-5s have a zero mortality. Then the easy 3 have nine deaths. That's a 1%. Easy 2, a 3%. And easy 1, a almost 30% mortality. So it really nicely splits up the risk. And, and the second part is going to be on risk evaluation in these elderly people. So just remember these numbers. So are the elderly, the subpopulation of 519 in this population, average age or medium, median age, 79, 45% males, and with a large number of easy three. You see the fours and the fives are pretty rare in our system. It probably would be higher here. What's the same experiment again? Use two experts and do all of the 519 retriaging twice by the triage nurse level and an expert nurse level. And you see, as we go along, here, the numbers outside the green range, they're pretty high, especially that under triage, some of the nurses kind of tend to do an easy three in an elderly patient, but he's actually, in fact, an easy two with a 3% mortality, which is kind of too high to just 
put on the hallway. Why is that? We under-triaged 117 patients. And the most important reason, and a little bit shocking, is that 30% were missed due to high-risk situations. So just if you look at the rock, you don't want to park your car right there. And this, this missed high-risk situation is something that is typical in the elderly. So they're just coming into triage, and we don't take them as serious as we should. The second is also a bit shocking. 24% are due to missed vitals. So we take the vitals, we record them, we take them down, but we don't think about them. Okay, blood pressure is 89. Okay, but he's old. It's a two. It's not a three. So you see, that's our system, and if we are not so great at this, some others might also not do as, as great. And of course, the rest is like uh, car racing, you know, big teams, big, you know, they try to get all the details right. And sometimes we just don't get the details right. So the vital signs, they're not always helpful. <laughs> sometimes the systems fail. <laughs> so don't take this, this, you know, do not touch thing in your hands. So serious disease is possible in patients with subtle vital sign changes. So if the pressure is just a bit low and you don't have a history, maybe he's, maybe he's hypertensive. He always ha has 180 systolic blood pressure. Comes in with 90. That's pretty low. So to conclude the first part about under triage, you see seniors not all, don't always remember what, what you're telling them, so keep repeating this to them. Um, Elderly ED patients are at risk of under triage. Of course, elderly people eventually go to the cemetery, as we all do. But on the other hand, we don't want them to go there too fast, and if they don't want to. So, <laughs> yeah. when correctly applied, we think that the easy is a reliable, valid, and accurate triage tool for elderly patients. The problem that we identified in this annals paper is that we don't accurately use the triage score. So that's the take-home message for this one. Now, the second part, I promised you to talk about non-specific complaints. Now, let's take uh, an example of, of different disease presentations. For example, a patient comes in and say, says, oh, I'm so weak. You go like, yeah, where? In your hand, in your arm? You go like, no, everywhere. I'm, I'm just weak. So generalized weakness is really problem you can't solve, an enigma. You don't know whether it's just psychiatric problems or sepsis. Then feeling exhausted about the same, gait disturbance, that's a, that's a little bit more specific because it could be neurological, it could be a stroke, it could be Parkinson, could be, yeah, so you get into more specific stuff. Localized weakness, that's pretty specific, 75% have a stroke. Dyspnea, 90% have are in a group of five patients, of five different diseases. So you see, it's a, it's a black to white over many, many gray scales, um, this disease presentation becoming more and more specific as we get down to the dyspnea. Um, one pilot study we did was just recording all the three first sentences an elderly patient would give us. So if in the first three sentences, uninterrupted, he would, he would use the word weak, any, any sort of weak, we'd say, okay, he's in the study. And whenever the, the local localization was clear, you saw the same result as in the big stroke studies. Presentation with localized weakness is 75% stroke. Now the problem is, 
if the word localized doesn't come up, if he just goes, she just goes, I'm weak, generalized weakness, all ICD chapters come up. So this is, this is the proof, in, in a way, that this is really nonspecific, this presentation. You can't make a, a, out a group of diseases that can't be behind it. So this is our system we have that uh, we license out to German and Swiss hospitals. There's about 40 hospitals using this now. And, you, you know, in emergency medicine, we're really symptom-oriented. People don't come in with, like, a, a price tag or a, a, a diagnosis on their forehead. We need to find out. But they come in with, like, oh, I have abdominal pain. Oh, I can't breathe. And for dyspnea, which I called a more specific presentation, you can see our, our uh, algorithm or, or standard, we call them standards, and you see in our hands 50% have more than one diagnosis, two or more, which may result in acute respiratory failure. So most frequently pulmonary edema, pulmonary embolism, and pneumonia. And you see the numbers here, heart failure and acute coronary syndrome, so the whole cardiac issue in dyspnea is 43% in our hands. Pneumonia, 35, COPD that has exacerbated, 32%, pulmonary embolism, 18%. So a group of four diseases make up more than 100% of the whole group because they have more than one disease behind that. And other causes, you see even asthma in our hands is only 3%, bronchitis is only 4%. So that's the low numbers. Now if you think, you've made an examination, you think, oh, could be pneumonia, you go into this pneumonia chapter, you get the definitions, and you get our, our uh, procalcitonin-guided pathway. You might be aware that we did loads of studies on procalcitonin, deciding whether this bacterial pneumonia needs to be treated with antibiotics, or it's something else. We do a risk stratification, usually by CURB-65, and then we do a procalcitonin-guided treatment. So if you go to that page, you see that procalcitonin, if it's over 0.25 micrograms per liter, the bacterial infection is fairly likely, and we encourage um, antibacterial antibiotic treatment. So with this pathway, we, we, could, we could really crank down on our antibiotic use. And Switzerland already has a very low antibiotic use. We're at the very end of the scale in Europe. Now, we, we could even reduce, like in an exacerbated COPD, and in pneumonia, this by further 40 to 80%, depending on the disease. Which is really neat. You can do a follow-up with procalcitonin because it has a, a short half-life. Unlike CRP, it's, it's, it shows up today if something's wrong. CRP, you always want to know the value of tomorrow because it has a half-life of 24 hours. So you kind of, if you have a patient with pneumonia with a CRP of zero, you take it and you say, okay, let's check it tomorrow. But with procalcitonin, you can check it six hours later. You can do follow-ups on day four, six, and eight. You can stop antibiotics safely if you know it's been dropping. So this is just an example, a side-tracking example of how to use our standards. The problem is we do not have standards on non-specific presentation. And even to define these non-specific complaints is really difficult. So what we did is defining 
non-specific complaints as all complaints that are not part of the set of specific complaints. So not part of this, you saw the big table, you know, from dyspnea to, to uh, abdominal pain, anything else. Or where an initial working diagnosis cannot be definitely established. Like we have uh, patients with uh, citrullinemia, a very rare disease. Of course, she comes in weak, but we know it's probably a case of citrullinemia because she has it. So that's no fun to include these patients in, in, into these studies. Now, in other studies, and there has been quite only few of them, like Van P., he, he claimed that 20% of his population showed a nonspecific disease presentation. We in Basel, we had a 14% rate of patients presenting in a non-specific manner, and a big Swedish study of 12,000 patients had a 5.5% um, non-specific presentation, but they called it differently, general disability. The population was even older, and they had a very high one-year mortality rate of 27%. As you, as you see, we only have half this one-year mortality rate. Another picture of Basel, and this is a, a Swiss uh, tightrope uh, artist. He holds several world records, and what he did here is, is walk across the Rhine. This is what we do with geriatric patients. We walk the tightrope. <laughs> no, we don't, we don't put them up there. No, no, they and only the ones that can walk we put them up there. Uh, we, we designed a bank study because I wanted to be a bank director. You see, a Swiss bank director would be, would be a great job. So what we did in the, in the study series, we're up to bank four now, it's always the same. Patients presenting with easy two or three, one is not available and fours and fives are no fun because this, they go the C and treat pathway. Does this patient have specific chief complaints? No, not eligible. Is the vital sign out of range? Any of the vital signs out of range? Yes, not eligible. Do we have a working diagnosis? Yes, not eligible. So if we, if we clear these three steps, then we include patients into our bank studies. So you see, we don't exclude younger than 65 old patients. And, and my belief is that geriatrics shouldn't be defined by age. So some people are really, truly geriatric at age 50. Others are running marathons at age 19, they couldn't be, they couldn't be ge called geriatric at all. So it's not the age, it's more like physiology of this patient. So if we, if we add up study one, two, and three, we get a population of 1,200 patients in the C, 38% uh, male, which uh, is according to the distribution we have for, for this age group, 81 years old, and living at home independent, 32%, help from family, 22%, professional help, 38%, assisted living or nursing home, 7%. So it's not really a nursing home population, but as you will see, they will go eventually to nursing homes when they show up in the emergency medical system. You see that we have direct borders of only 8.3% due to admission blocks. And the large majority here, 78%, is EZ3, which you have learned is probably due to under triage in the elderly. Now, these patients have many complaints, have multimorbidity and polypharmacy. So lots of these patients have been coming to our department. We have their medical records. They have 
four average complaints when they come. So not just one complaint, but different complaints. They have pre-existing five comorbidities that when they come. So the question is, do they have one of the fives now that has been exacerbating, or a sixth one? And they have six different drugs when they come in. So this is typical, and it goes up to 17. So the 30-day follow-up of these 1,200 patients, you can see here, serious outcome defined as acute treatable disease, such as pneumonia. I'll come to urinary tract infection in a moment, um, heart failure. Any of this predefined list is 58%. And the mortality in these patients is 6.4%. So that's higher than stroke patients, for example. So we do such a huge, tremendous amount of work we put into stroke patients. And their functional outcome is not worse than these patients here. Their mortality is much better than these patients here. In geriatric patients, we don't do anything. We let them stand in the hallways, at least where I come from. And they have a one-year mortality of 13%, and they're dead in 6% in a month. So this is a serious type of population. You see, EZ3 doesn't really make the point here. They stay 13 hours in the ED between 10 and 16. You see, we only have 8% direct borders, so they kind of stay overnight. And they stay in hospital for 23 days, and one of them stayed 325 days in the hospital. So they're, they're pretty sick, and nobody really wants them. Now, the, probably the most important question you will, will have is what's behind nonspecific complaints? What are the diseases that we finally, after 30 days, were able to make in, in terms of a golden standard diagnosis. You see UTI, urinary tract infection here, over 9%. Functional impairment, 7%. Depression, anxiety, 6.5%. Electrolyte disorders, over 6 Pneumonia, over 6 And then comes heart failure. You see, the list could be extended indefinitely. And we made over 300 diagnoses in these 1,200 patients. So can be anything. Interestingly, depression, anxiety, this is the disease of the younger. So we included about 15% under 65-year-old patients in this group. And there, it's about 50% psychi psychiatric disease. And in the elderly, over 65, it's pretty rare to have depression and anxiety as the primary diagnosis when they present as generalized weakness. So you see... To make a very, very long story short about urinary tract infection, maybe this could end into a discussion too. You see, 50% of UTIs were considered serious. That's the ones that were considered having sepsis. So at least two of the serious as, um, systemic inflammatory response signs. The problem in elderly patients, though, is they can have sepsis with zero systemic inflammatory response signs. They usually have no fever they a lot of times have no tachypnea, they have no heart rate changes, even due to medication. So still we stuck to the definition sepsis is two systemic inflammatory response signs, and if they didn't have that, we consider that as non-serious. Though knowing we have some that have uh, blood cultures positive, and et cetera, et cetera. Second thing is pneumonia, heart failure, see, Almost all pneumonias and heart failure were classified <coughs> as being 
acute treatable disease, serious condition. So one of the problems turned up that ED diagnosis in these patients was under 50% correct. So it didn't hold true after 30 days in about half of the population. If you take all, not all specific complaints that we, we looked for in the same period of time, thousands of patients, you saw that the first ED diagnosis was held true, was accurate after 30 days in over 90%. So you can make two worlds, non-specific, you don't know what you're doing, you don't know what they have, specific complaints, you're on solid grounds. What makes this story so difficult? We asked over 100 medical specialists, doctors, geriatricians, family physicians, ED physicians, and, and we gave them the story, original uh, uh, anamnestic details of, UTI, of a UTI patient, of a congestive heart failure patient, of a pneumonia patient, etc. We gave them the original history of the patient and asked them, what do you think should be our differential diagnosis? And they didn't have, did not have specific complaints, so it was really a difficult story to, to, to solve. But you see, the correct diagnosis here in percent, number one diagnosis in UTI story, without any fever, without any dysuria, was 65%, and included in the top three differential diagnosis, 85%. So here we're pretty good. Doctors tend to perform well if they think about UTI. They have subtle inputs. They have a different cues that go in the same direction. They can make the diagnosis. On the other hand, see there was one story of congestive <coughs> heart failure that only 28% of the physicians would even include in their differential diagnosis. So we tend to forget about congestive heart failure if it's not obvious if they don't come in with dyspnea, if they don't come in with, with noises on the lungs, rails and stuff. So this makes the story difficult. People have difficult histories and they won't tell you the details and you can't find out what's really behind that story. Maybe the paella story helps, pattern recognition. If we know which complaints are more towards the serious end, which complaints are more towards the non-serious end, we could look at exhaustion, for example. And you see the serious conditions, they are there by a certain number, and it's statistically significant, but probably clinically not relevant because they overlap so much. But if a patient complains about exhaustion, it can help to say, oops, that's more towards serious. On the other hand, if they complain of gait disturbance, of course, a lot less patients complain about that, but it's also statistically significant that it's rather non-serious. And loss of appetite is another symptom that tends towards seriousness. This all doesn't really help us much. Now, should we do risk stratification without having a diagnosis? I just try to wake you up a little bit. Of course, it's lunchtime and <laughs> it's difficult to stay awake, but just try to help me here. We identified six predictors, and of course we tried to guess them beforehand. Three clinical predictors for serious outcome, three lab predictors for serious outcome. Let's see if we get them together. What would you think, which three lab parameters would you take from an elderly patient as described in order to find out whether there's serious disease? You have all lab parameters you want, three only show up in all our sophisticated statistics. 
which would you choose? White blood count, yeah, I thought so too. I marked that on my list. I was wrong. It was completely non-specific. Albumin, <coughs> I, I thought that too. Dro dropped out. Creatinine, what about urea? Lactate. Lactate is so, so rarely positive that it didn't show up. But the creatinine and urea is always when I give talks, everybody goes creatinine. Nobody believes in urea. And I'm always <laughs> surprised because look at all these predictors out there, prediction rules. Has, is there any prediction rule with creatinine in it? No. All of them have urea in them. Curb. C, confusion, U, urea, in pneumonia. So if urea goes up, it's really an interesting size. So we, we, got, we got one. We, we guessed right with creatinine, but it, urea is always better than creatinine for an unknown <coughs> reason. We got two more to go. Yeah, we, we, we recorded that because it's a stress marker. We were uh, surprised to not find it. Didn't, it didn't discriminate well. CRP? CRP, yeah. CRP discriminated really well. Yeah, that was, that was, that was one. Because all infections, you know, it's a, an infectious marker, so uh, you tend to find infections with CRP. And the last one is sodium. And of course... Hyponatremia, that's a problem. They, they, they fall, they are weak, they can't stand. And, and sodium below 130 usually affects an 80, 90-year-old pretty, pretty much more than it would affect us. So you see, see stats with six predictors are pretty high at almost 80%, which is a surprise. Now we, let's find the clinical predictors. Does anybody believe we have any clinical predictors that we could use in this population? Of course, this enormous C-stat is combination of CRP, sodium, um, urea, plus the three clinical predictors. So we should trust ourselves. It's what the doctor thinks actually counts. That means, does this patient look sick? So what we did, we gave all residents and tendings like a sliding bar, well, you know, from pain scales, you know, and, uh, and they just slid the bar over and said, well, he looks 90% sick. This one looks 80% sick. She looks healthy, 0%. Okay, so it helps. Urea, sodium, CRP, patient looks sick from 0 to 100. It's actually a predictor. This is something that has been rarely published, but it could be shown in this population. And then one question we, we took from geriatric studies is, if you ask a patient, is everything exhausting that you do now that, that wasn't exhausting like last week? They, if they ask this, if they respond with yes, they're called exhausted patients, and this is predictive for serious outcome. And congestive heart disease. So if they, if they have congestive heart disease, they tend to fall into the serious outcome group. Now the problem is, if you have six predictors that you will f forget in an hour again, you can't really work in the ED with that. So you need something easier. You would have to have a risk uh, calculator, which we did, but no one, no one ever used it. Because you don't go around putting in the, you know, the six numbers and then forget about it. So actually you could do prediction of risk in an elderly patient without any diagnosis yet pretty seriously with these six parameters. Now, you could predict mortality, of course, by two basic parameters. Which, which two parameters drive mortality in any given population? 
we need some epidemiologists they can help us age, age of course age the older the, the dead and the second male the male the dead okay <laughs> <laughs> we just die younger so it's as easy as that so wh whenever you do a risk prediction for mortality the baseline model has to include age and sex of course and that drives age and gender drives I think 65% 64% of the mortality is driven by age and gender so you need to have a test that beats this largely and you see there, there are tests around like copeptin and peroxyredoxin 4 are predictors biomarkers that beat this without having any information on the patient just uh, add copeptin or PRX four to any given patient in this group and you get an area under the curve of 79%. So wh why is that? And is that just out of the blue? Well, not really. We did loads of studies on uh, copeptin. And copeptin is a prognostic marker in many, many different diseases. In so many different diseases that we knew it was nonspecific. So if you take a marker, something that swims around in your blood, that is non-specific, but it tends to go up in any sort of disease, you can use it to make risk prediction in non-specific complaints. You can do it to do risk prediction in sepsis, in low respiratory tract infections, in heart disease, in ischemic stroke. In fact, if you have a patient with a stroke, you do a copeptin, it's, it's better than doing a full, complete neurostatus in order to predict, predict the outcome because it seems to measure the total amount of stress. It's in the, uh, in, in, it's in the axis, how do you call it? Uh, uh, hypothalamic pituitary axis, HPA. It's one of the products there, copeptin, and it helps to measure stress. Now this, uh, this ROC plot for outcome prediction, you can put in copeptin, PRX4, or you can combine them all these outcomes are pretty good with these markers. And, but on the other hand, you can see that if you, if you use copeptin or PRX4, you see there's a vast overlap between serious outcome group and non-serious outcome group. And that's always the pr problem with risk, risk prediction. So you could add another one of these markers that's the mid-regional pro-adrenomedulin. It's the newest one of the whole gang of biomarkers that, that turn up lately. And M uh, MR pro-ADM is a pretty unique marker, also non-specific, but it separates mortality much better than these two. So you see copeptin only helps if it's really high. If the highest tercile over 31 picomole, then you see mortality comes in. It's, it goes down to 10%. PRX4, the same thing, tercile 1 and 2 don't really show up anything, and tercile 3, mortality 12%. And so you don't, you don't like these markers that only bring up the high mortality group. You would like to have a low, intermediate, and high mortality group. If you don't know anything about patients, this might really help. So that's why we came up with pro-ADM, because we've shown it also in sepsis to show up, and also in cardiac disease to show up. And here you see the the difference between an, an, an third tercile, second tercile, and first tercile pro-ADM really makes a difference in mortality. So that's our newest hit biomarker. And to conclude is to say that copeptin and PRX4 are new markers. 
in this group, very heterogeneous group, elderly patients, non-specific complaints, but on the other hand, as I showed you in the last slide, pro-ADM might be valuable, more valuable for risk stratification because it really shows you a low risk, intermediate risk and high risk group in these patients focusing on mortality. Of course you can say, well mortality in an 82 year old is not really an interesting outcome. Look at whatever, length of stay, look at uh, institutionalization, all that. But on the other hand, mortality is the, is the tip of the iceberg. If they die, they probably have other serious outcomes that go along with it. So I want to give my thanks to all my group. You see lots of people working in three different hospitals to get all these uh, patients recruited. Now we're up to seven hospitals that help us out. And Miriam Christ, uh, she's really a, a good friend of mine. She helped me a lot with the biomarker story. You might have heard she uh, published the first really good paper on, uh, on copeptin in, in The Lancet uh, years and years ago. And this is my disclosures. Brahms have provided all measurements and I did loads of board memberships. And that's for, f that's for fundraising. So all the money I get from board memberships I put into this group because it's really hard to finance a group on geriatric emergency medicine because no company wants to pay for that. It doesn't seem interesting enough. It's much easier to get money for cardiac markers. So the, over the last eight years, we have written numerous grants. We have received no support from public or private foundation and we have invested 